Well, good morning, everyone. We have come together and we have sang God's praises, and now we turn our hearts and our attention to God's Word uh, to hear what He has to say to us this morning. But before we do that, uh, let's go to God and let's ask Him for His help uh, as we study God's Word together this morning. Let's pray. Lord God, we gather together today as a people, uh, not as a people who are perfect or who have this life all figured out, uh, certainly not a people who have everything together. Father, we gather together as a people who have been been redeemed by the blood of your Son, Jesus. We gather together as a people who have been forgiven of our sin, uh, and we gather together as a people who cling to you Uh, for the only hope that we have for our salvation. Lord, I I thank you for this church. And I I thank you for uh, what you are doing in our lives and among uh, the life of our church. And Father, I pray that you would uh, continually be using us as a church, Father, to build each each other up, to encourage one another in the faith. Uh, Father, I pray that you would knit us together as a church family uh, for your glory and for your purposes. Lord, one of the ways that you do that, one of the primary ways that you do that is through giving us your word. And so, Father, I pray that as we approach your scripture this morning, Father, that we would not see this as man's word, that we would not see this uh, as as just another word, but, Father, that we would see uh, these truths as the very words that come from your mouth, Father, because that's what they are. Lord, I pray that your word would do its work in our hearts this morning. Father, I pray that you would change us through it. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Amen. We're going to be in Philippians chapter 4, so if you have your Bibles with you, I want to invite you uh, to turn to Philippians chapter 4. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 9 this morning. <clears throat> For those of you who uh, have been with us uh, and who, uh, who regularly come, uh, you know that Pastor Richard has been preaching through uh, the, the book of Genesis uh, and every now and then he takes a break from that uh, just for rest and for planning and those kinds of things uh, and gives me the opportunity uh, to preach. And we have been walking together as I've been preaching through the book of Philippians. Uh, it's been a little bit of time since we looked at Philippians chapter 3. So before we jump into chapter 4, I want to take just a couple of minutes uh, to think back and to remind ourselves of what has come uh, before in the first three chapters. Uh, <clears throat> what's common in, in in all of Paul's letters, uh, that, and you'll see this this morning, as he gets towards the end of a letter, one, one of the things that the Apostle Paul regularly does is he starts taking everything that he has talked about from that point and packing it all in to very succinct, uh, very application-oriented uh, just tidbits. And so a lot of times when you get towards the end of one of Paul's letters, what you get is really just kind of an onslaught uh, kind of, you know, shotgun style of all of these da- different applications. And they're all based off of everything that has come before. So it's important that we remember, because uh, it's been a little bit of time, everything that he's talked about in chapters 1 through 3. We remember that this is the Apostle Paul uh, that wrote uh, this letter. He wrote it to the church at Philippi, which is a church that he helped to start and found on one of his missionary journeys. We know that as he's writing this letter, he is sitting chained to a wall in a prison cell. Uh, This is one of Paul's prison letters. Uh, And so 
it's, it's pretty astounding when you think of everything that the Apostle Paul has written and talked about. And a lot of the things that we're going to be talking about this morning, it's all in the context of, of Paul being in prison, uh, which is a pretty incredible and astounding thing. <clears throat> we remember from chapter 1 that Paul is rejoicing uh, in the work uh, that the Philippians, that God has done in the life of the Philippians. Uh, and he is, he is rejoicing greatly because of their fellowship in the gospel with him. We remember that when Paul talked about fellowship, it's a little bit more than what we generally tend to think of when we think of fellowship. Especially a Southern Baptist, always when fellowship is involved, there's fried chicken involved, right? We're sitting around a table, sharing a meal with one another, talking with one another, encouraging one another, and that certainly is true biblical fellowship. But that's only part of it. Right? The rest of when we talked about this, when we looked at Philippians chapter 1, the rest of uh, fellowship, the, to fill it out, to fill out our understanding of what biblical fellowship is, is that fellowship is actually like a partnership, right? It's, it's the people of God who are uniting together under a common goal, under a common purpose, under a common commission, with a common faith and a common Lord and a common baptism, and we're sent out on mission together. So part of our fellowship, a big part of our fellowship, is actually partnership with one another. In the gospel, linking arms together with, uh, for the sake of the gospel. Chapter 2, moving forward really quick. Chapter 2, remember uh, Paul talks about Christ's humility. How we as a church, uh, since we are partnered together, since we are linked up together, we're all still sinners, uh, we, uh, sometimes conflict arises, right? Sometimes conflict arises when we are joined uh, together. And so Paul encourages us, he commands us, to consider each other as more important than we consider our own selves. To lay aside our differences and our preferences and those kinds of things for the common cause of the gospel. And then he spells out in great detail how Jesus uh, provided the perfect example for us in laying aside ourselves for the sake of others. There is no greater example than Jesus who came and lived a perfect life for you and me, who died on the cross taking the punishment for our sin that we deserve, and then rising again from the dead so that we could have eternal life forever with Christ. There's no greater example of humility uh, and service of others than Jesus. <clears throat> we see in chapter 3 that that righteousness that we need, that righteousness that we desire, it comes from Jesus. And so everything else that we have in this world, Paul says, I count it as complete loss for the sake of knowing Christ Jesus as Lord. So with all of those things, with all of that background, we come to our text this morning. And I'm going to read for us chapters, uh, chapter 4, verses 1 through 9. We're going to read that together, but have all of those things in the back of your mind uh, as we read through our text this morning. And it'll really make the text make a whole lot more sense. So let's read the text together. Starting in verse 1. God's word says, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and whom I long for, my joy, my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Euodia and I entreat Synecdoche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be made known to everyone. 
The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your mind in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, If there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things, which you have learned and received and heard and seen in me. Practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. This is God's word to us this morning. Starting there in verse 1, jumping right in, uh, Paul says, uh, therefore, my beloved brothers, right? And remember, I think it was the last sermon that, uh, that I preached through uh, in Philippians, Philippians chapter 3, we asked the question or we, we, we made the premise that whenever there's that word, therefore, in the Scripture, the first thing we have to do is figure out what it's there for, right? That's a general rule. If you come across the word therefore in Scripture, try to figure out what it's there for. And that'll help you to understand what it is, the purpose, the push uh, of the text and get the main idea. Well, here, that therefore includes everything that Paul had just talked about from chapter 1, verse 1, all the way up into chapter 4. Everything that he had just said, every instruction, every basic principle, uh, every word that he has just said, he's now going to pack down, he's going to boil it all down into several different points, and he's just going to shoot them at us rapid fire, okay? Now, there's about five or six of these Uh, different points uh, of these different commands, but I'm only going to focus on three of them this morning. I'm going to focus on three of them, and those are going to be the three points of our sermon. But all three of these things, as a matter of fact, all of the commands that Paul gives in these verses, they all come under one umbrella, and that umbrella is found there in verse 1. He says, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and whom I long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord. In other words, Paul is saying you want to know what it looks like to be a faithful church. You want to know what it looks like to be a faithful follower of Jesus. He's about, he's like, I'm about to spell it out for you as plainly and as clearly as I possibly can. You want to persevere in your faith? You want to stand firm in the Lord? Do this. Do these things. Okay, and then he goes and he lists these different things. And we're going to focus on three of those different things. And that brings us to the, to the first point of the sermon this morning, the first point that Paul gives us is that we are to live in unity with each other in the Lord. That we are, li- we are to live in unity with each other in the Lord. <clears throat> One of the common mistakes that we as Christians today in our culture can make when we approach the Scripture is we think oftentimes that the Scripture is talking primarily and specifically to me as an individual, Right? So we read through the scriptures uh, and we hear, we see this word you, this pronoun you. And what we oftentimes think is that that you is talking about you specifically, right? You as an individual. But oftentimes in the Greek language, it doesn't quite come out in English every time. If we were to, if we were to do a country Bible, it should be translated this way. It should be translated y'all, right? <clears throat> that word you is oftentimes plural in the Greek text, in the original text, to just translate you plural, right? So y'all, right? The Christian faith is not a faith that is to be lived out individually, right? 
It's a faith that is to be lived out in community with other people within the context of the church. Right? Paul is, uh, the, the entire Bible is very clear about that. And oftentimes when we come to those places in the Scripture where commands are given to you, what they're actually being given to is you, to y'all, right? To everyone, to all of us. And that certainly is the case in these verses, right? Paul calls out two ladies in the church at Philippi who are at odds with one another. How would you like to be that lady? One of those ladies, right? Uh, Synecdoche and Euodia, right? Forever engraved in the eternal word of God because of a fight that they were having, (laughs) right? The Apostle Paul calls them out by name to be read in front of the entire church at Philippi, and he says to them, get along with one another. I don't know about you, but for some reason, to me, that is a big encouragement. (laughs) It's a big encouragement that there were people in the church that were at odds with one another, right? And the reason is, is because even though we are a, a body, we are the body of Christ, this body is made up of individual members. And guess what? Those individual members are sinful. We are sinful wretched individuals. Though we are saved by God's grace, we still struggle with our sin. And because of that, conflict will arise. Differences are going to arise. Right? We, we are not going to get along together perfectly all the time. That was a, it's a massive encouragement to me that two women who labored faithfully by Paul's side, by the Apostle Paul, labored faithfully alongside with him, had fellowship with them in the gospel, had partnership with him in the gospel, they couldn't get along. So what the Apostle Paul does is he says, get along in the Lord. Live in unity with one another in the Lord. And then he calls on help. (laughs) He calls on help. And he says, you guys... My beloved brother, I want you to make sure that they get along, right? I want you to make sure that they aren't at odds with one another. Church family, this is a very relevant word to us today. Because so often, the enemy's strategy is to attack our unity as a church. And so often, the way that he does that is by little bitty petty things. Whether or not we should sit in pews or chairs. What color the carpet should be? What style of music we should sing? Well, he said this about me, or she said this about me, or, or any, any number of things that in light of eternity, that in light of the scope of what it is that Christ has put us together to do are so small and so insignificant. But oftentimes, Satan will creep in and he'll attack our unity. He will attack our togetherness for the gospel because he knows that if he, can, if he can put a wedge in between us, then it causes harm to the gospel. Then we're not focused on what it is that Christ has called us together for, namely to build each other up in the Lord and to take the gospel to the nations. Right? And if he can just get his foot in the door with one little, you know, one little wedge, then he'll do it. And he'll try to drive a wedge in our unity with one another. Brothers and sisters, do not take your unity with your brothers and sisters in this room for granted. Because as soon as you do, Satan will attack. And he will, for his purposes, will try to drive a wedge between you and your other brothers and sisters that you're sharing pews with this morning because it does harm to the gospel. 
And that's exactly what he wants to do. So Paul entreats these sisters in Christ to get along, but notice it's not just to get along, right? It's, It's not just, well, you know, put your differences aside or just forget about them or, you know, leave conflict unresolved and just, you know... You know, or maybe Yodia, you sit up here and Synecdoche, you sit back there and just don't talk to each other, right? No, that's not what the Apostle Paul does. He says that they are to live in unity with each other in the Lord. In the Lord. I think the reason that he says this is because he knows that these two women have a common faith. They have a common baptism, Right? It's no surprise that your brother or sister and you yourself are sinners. It's no surprise that there's going to be conflict among us. But when that conflict arises, brothers and sisters, don't dwell on the conflict itself. Resolve that conflict in the gospel of the Lord. Share the same grace with your brother and sister sitting next to you that God has shown to you. Share that same grace. Extend that same mercy and that same grace to them. Paul says it in uh, chapter, uh, it's either chapter 2, it's in chapter 2. He says, consider others more important than yourselves, right? For the sake of the gospel. (laughs) Because there's more important things that we as a church are to be about rather than the small and petty conflicts that Satan uses to drive a wedge in our unity. So you want to know how to persevere in the faith? You want to know how to stand firm in the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ? Well, that's the first way. That we are to stand together, united together in the Lord for the sake of the gospel. We all belong to Christ. We've all been called to a common faith. We've been called to one baptism. And we have one common purpose. One common commission. Don't let Satan drive anything in the way of that. Don't let him get in the way of that. That leads us to our next point. Our next point, point two, is this. Don't be anxious, but pray because the Lord is near. Don't be anxious, but pray because the Lord is near. I get these, this from uh, verses 4 through 7. Now, really, there are several different commands here. There are several different points here that Paul uh, is making, but for the sake of time, I just want to pick this one out. The first one he says there in verse 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. That's a command. He's saying rejoice, right? The second in verse 5, let your reasonableness be made known to everyone. It's another command, right? Make your reasonableness be made known to everyone. And then he says, the Lord is near. The Lord is near. He's close, right? He's, he's close both in a spiritual sense in that when two or three are gathered together in his name, right, he is there. The, the, the Spirit of the Lord dwells in the presence of His church. He is very alive and present with us in this room this morning. The Lord is near. But the Lord is also near uh, in an end-time sense. The, the coming of the Lord is near. There's coming a time that is very, very close. We don't know when, but it's coming soon in which the, the Lord is not going to be present with us only in His Holy Spirit, but also physically. When he returns again, the Lord is near. Since that is true, Paul gives us a command. There in verse 6. Do not be anxious about anything. Don't be anxious about anything. I didn't plan this, but it's Mother's Day, right? Pastor Richard posted a a blog on Facebook. I don't know how many of you saw that. I think it was a Gospel Coalition blog. 
uh, where a pastor kind of did a rough shot survey and said, hey, what should I talk about on Mother's Day? And the overwhelming response that he received from mothers was, preach about the Lord's teaching on worry. <laughs> preach about the Lord's teaching on anxiety. For whatever reasons, mothers are worriers. <laughs> it's, a, it's a gift, it's a spiritual gift that God has given you to keep us alive, I think. Uh, if it were up to me and my dad, we would have both been dead a long time ago. My mother, because of her care for us, has kept us alive and walking. Right? <clears throat> and so, uh, but mothers tend to be worriers, right? Uh, I think that's a, that's a general truth. Now, now, men, we certainly are not excused, right? We, we are anxious about all kinds of things, and we worry about all kinds of things. But out of these three commands, Paul spends the most time on this command to not be anxious about anything. Not to be anxious about anything. Over dinner last night, Laura and I were, <clears throat> were sitting and we were talking to each other. And, uh, you know, I, I told her that this was part of the, the sermon text. And uh, I asked her, you know, as a mother, she is, she's confessed to me and talked to me a lot of times about how she struggles with worry and anxiety. And I said, what are some things that you, as a mother of two, worry about? <clears throat> she looked down at her dinner plate and she said, name it. <laughs> name it. I've worried about it, Right? You worry about the well-being of your children. You, you worry about, you know, are, are, they gonna, are they growing up okay? You know, you worry about their, their physical well-being. You worry about, uh, you know, all the little things. Are, are they speaking right? Are they, are they learning? Are they developing the way that they're supposed to develop? You, know, you worry about, am I going to be a good mom or not? <laughs> Even seasoned mothers, I believe, have that worry every now and then. And, you know, motherhood changes as time goes on. But I think that's a kind am I going to be a good mom? Am, am I going to mess this up so bad that my kids are going to be ruined one day? <laughs> right? That's something that I believe all mothers struggle with. As if you had, you know, as if the, the condition of your child's heart was up to you and not up to the Lord, right? We, we still, we worry about these things. And there, there are many, many other things that, that moms worry about, uh, both great and small. And Laura and I were talking about this some over dinner, and she uh, she's read several books uh, that, uh, you know, kind of a biblical perspective on worry and anxiety and those kinds of things. And she said that there was an illustration in one of her books uh, that was really helpful to her. And I wanted to share that with you this morning. The author of this book that she was re- reading said that, that worry is like sitting in a rocking chair. Right? It gives you something to do. Right? You're rocking back and forth. It gives you something to do, but it doesn't get you anywhere. That's true, isn't it? Worry and anxiety is just like sitting in a rocket. It gives you something to do in the meantime, but, but it doesn't really get you anywhere. Right? <clears throat> Oftentimes, the, the source of our worry, at the, very, at the root of our worry, at the root of our anxiety, and this is true if you're a mother, if you're a father, if you're a husband, if you're single, whatever. Oftentimes, the root, the source of our anxiety, the source of our worry is not trusting in the Lord. Right? I think at their heart, mothers are fixers. <laughs> we think of fathers as fixers. Something breaks in the house, dad fixes it, right? But on, a, on, a, on an interpersonal level, I think mothers are actually fixers. When something's broken, when a heart is broken, when a relationship is strained and broken, mothers want to jump in there and fix it, right? But there, there are times in life every day that we face when something's broken and we can't do a thing in the world about it. It's completely out of our hands. So our response, oftentimes, is to worry. 
It's to worry. It gives us something to do, right? It gives us something to do. If I can't fix it, I can at least worry about it. It fills our time. But the problem with worrying, the problem with anxiety, is that it doesn't get you anywhere. It doesn't get you anywhere. Paul offers an alternative to worry in these verses. And it is a precious, precious reminder. He says, don't worry about anything. Rather, make your requests known to God. Make your requests known to God. You see, the reason why worrying about something doesn't work is because it doesn't do anything. We recognize that the situation is out of our control. But that same situation is never out of the control of God. It's never out of the control of God. So, as opposed to worrying about it, take your requests, make them known to God. Because when you do that, what you're doing is you're saying, Lord, I realize my own finitude. (laughs) I realize uh, my own limitedness. And I realize that I am not an all-powerful person, but I know that you are. And I know that this request that I have, that you can take care of it. And I am casting myself on your good and gracious and loving arms to take care of it. See, that actually does something, right? Instead of filling your time with worry, fill your time with prayer. Because worry doesn't get you anywhere, but prayer takes you so far. Notice how it is. Paul even tells us how it is that we're supposed to pray. He says, uh, don't be anxious about anything, but in everything. In everything. I, I don't think that there's a person in this room who would disagree with the fact and, and, and who doesn't understand the fact that there is nothing too big that you can take to God. Matter of fact, I think it's in those times when we realize that the problem is too big that that's, we wait till then before we take it to God. We're at the end of our rope. We don't know what else to do. So we go to God in prayer. Well, that's well and good. Right? You should fall on your knees and cast yourselves on the mercy and grace of our all-powerful, sovereign Lord. But Paul doesn't just say, only when times are tough, go to the Lord in prayer. He says, in everything. See, the greater truth that we have to understand that oftentimes I think that we fail to understand is that we don't just take the big stuff to God. There is nothing that is too big that you can't take it to the Lord and cast your care on Him. But also, brothers and sisters, there is nothing too small either. There is nothing too small. See, I think with the small stuff, we, we tend to think, well, you know, God doesn't care about that. Or I don't want to pull God's ear for, for something this small or something this insignificant. But brothers and sisters, that is not the case. There is nothing too small for you to take to the Lord, to cast upon Him. I don't know how many times throughout my day I have to stop and remind myself and pray, Lord, I can feel my own heart starting to shift towards sin. Right? Maybe, maybe there's an unmet expectation that I have. I expect my kids or I expect my wife to do something and I don't communicate that with them clearly uh, and, and that, that expectation is unmet. And so what, what tends to happen in my heart is that I tend to get frustrated. Uh, not, you know, I'm not full-on angry, 
Uh, I'm not, you know, I don't go throwing things and that kind of stuff. Not yet, anyway. It, c- it could lead to that, right? It could lead to that. But where it starts is just with this small hurt or this small disappointment. And brothers and sisters, it's in those times where you should stop and you should ask God, Lord, there's something going on in my heart here, <laughs> right? I- I- I'm prone here uh, towards disappointment, towards despair, towards anger. Where I'm not there yet, right? It, it hasn't come full-blown yet. But, but there's the start of it there. Cast that care upon the Lord and cut that sin off at its root when it gets started. See, that's a small thing that, that many times we'll go throughout our day. Somebody will disappoint us. Somebody, somebody will do something that, you know, hacks us off a little bit. And, well, I'll just get over it and I'll move on. No, take it to the Lord in prayer. Take it to the Lord in prayer and deal with it in your own heart before it becomes full-blown sin. So there's nothing too big for you to take to the Lord in prayer. There's also nothing too small. Your God loves you and He cares for you and He is powerful and He is sovereign and He is good and He cares about every detail of your life. So don't be afraid to go to God in everything. Notice he says too, don't be anxious about anything but in everything by prayer, right? Prayer is our means of communication with God. We speak and God listens. And that is a, that is a fantastic, amazing truth <laughs> that God hears the prayers of His children. He delights to hear those prayers and He delights to answer those prayers according to His goodwill. He delights to hear those prayers and He delights to answer those prayers according to His goodwill. <clears throat> so we take everything by prayer and supplications. We do it with thanksgiving. We go to God thanking God for His goodness and all that He has done. See, we go to God and we can pray and we can cast our burdens and cast our cares upon Him with thanksgiving because He is a good God who can answer your prayers and who cares for you. The goodness of God ought to lead you to praise and thanksgiving in all of your prayers, even the most difficult ones. So when the doctor report comes back and it's bad news, Go to God and pray to Him with thanksgiving because He is a good God who cares for you and who will take care of you. <clears throat> when there's strife in your home with your spouse, go to God and cast your cares upon Him with thanksgiving because He is a good and a sovereign God who cares for you. When things are at their worst and when things are at their best, we are to pray with a heart of thanksgiving to the Lord because of who He is and because of what He has done for us in sending His his Son, Jesus. If the Lord loves you so much that He sent His Son to die for you, how could He not withhold good things from you? How would He withhold good things from you? He cares for you, and He loves you, and He delights to answer your prayers according to His good will. Notice the result. Notice the result of of uh, praying in this way. Notice the result of casting our cares upon God with thanksgiving. Verse 7, it says, The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. It's good and perfect peace. When we go and we cast our anxiety and our care upon the Lord, He gives us peace. He gives us peace. Miss Janice has a magnet in, in her office sticking on one of her filing cabinets that says, if you pray, why worry? And if you worry, why pray? (laughs) 
It's a great little saying. It's a great little reminder. And it's true, isn't it? If we're going to go and we're going to cast our cares upon the Lord, why are we to be anxious about anything? Because He is going to answer our prayers and He will give us peace. Right? So don't, don't worry about things. But cast yourself in the arms and the hands of your good and sovereign and all-powerful and all-loving and gracious and merciful God because He cares for you. He cares for you. The third way that we are to stand firm in our faith, the third point of the sermon, <clears throat> very briefly, is that we are to resolve to walk in personal holiness in thought and in deed. We're to resolve to walk in personal holiness in thought and in deed. These are really familiar verses here. Verse 8 I could spend an entire 45-minute sermon just talking about this verse. I promise I won't. But in verse 8, he says, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Think about these things. One of the things that my mom uh, was always concerned about when I was growing up is the type of people that I associated myself with. The reason being is because you, you become who you hang out with, right? You become who you hang out with. <clears throat> Another saying that many mothers, many of you guys have used, right? You are what you eat, right? What you put into your body, you know, becomes who you are, right? The point of those sayings is it's not so much the outward deed, but it's the inside. It's what goes inside that counts, right? It's what goes inside that counts. The, the Scripture goes much further than that. It's much more profound than just you are what you eat. The Scripture teaches us that you are what you think. You are what you think. First Samuel 16.7 says, Man looks at the outward appearance, but God judges the heart. Jeremiah 17.10, the Lord judges the heart and examines the mind to reward each man according to his deeds. Psalm 139.23-27, God pours out his heart to God and he says, God, examine my heart to see if there is any sinful way within him. Isaiah 55, verses 6-9 that Pastor Richard read to us to open our service this morning. Let the wicked forsake their ways and the evil man forsake his thoughts. Because my ways are higher than your ways and my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. Matthew 5, 27 and 28, Jesus says, You've heard it said, do not commit adultery. But I say to you, if, anybody, if anyone even looks at a woman with lustful intent in his heart, has committed adultery with her in his heart. Hebrews four thirteen: nothing is hidden from God's sight. All over the scripture, it teaches us you are what you think. What's on the inside is what the Lord looks at. It's what's on the inside that matters. There's a proverb. I can't remember the exact reference. But one of the proverbs even says, As a man thinks in his heart, so is he. You are what you think. If that's true, if you are what you think, then these verses take on a whole new light. Paul says, think holy thoughts. You think holy thoughts because holy people think holy thoughts. People who are made righteous by the blood of Christ think holy thoughts. Dwell on these things. Jesus prays a profound prayer for us in John 17, 17. He prays to the Lord and He says, God, sanctify them in Your truth. 
your word is truth. Right? Given those things, it's given all this biblical evidence, it's no wonder that Paul commands us to dwell on holy things and the most powerful remedy against, the in, against your indwelling sin, against the sin that, that lives in your heart, that's in your mind, that we don't see, that don't play themselves out in your actions all the time, the most powerful weapon against those things is to dwell on the Word of God. Psalm 1, the righteous man delights in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Psalm 119.11, I will hide your word in my heart so that I will not sin against you. How many times, brothers and sisters, are we guilty of not thinking God's thoughts after him? How many times are, are we prone to, to the bombardment of our culture uh, to show us base, unlovely, unholy, despicable trash. (laughs) Those things fill our thoughts and our minds rather than the Word of God. None of us can escape, (laughs) right? This onslaught of of sin, but we can recognize it for what it is. And the sad thing is, is a a lot of Christians today, their thoughts and their minds are more shaped and molded by the things that this world teaches and the things that this world says rather than God's Word. I want to encourage you as we close to be careful to walk wisely and circumspectly in the world. Be mindful of Jesus' prayer for you to sanctify them in your truth because your Word is truth. We are to think God's thoughts after Him. Let's go to God and let's ask Him for His help in these things. Father, You are good and Your Word is good. And it convicts us, and it, uh, it shows us our areas of need for you. And Father, I pray that you would help us this morning to be obedient to these words. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be unified with one another, our brothers and sisters in this church. Lord, I pray for our church. I pray that we would not take our unity for granted. Lord, I pray that we would work hard to maintain unity in the gospel with each other. Lord, help us to consider others more significant than ourselves and help us to walk together in unity in the Lord, one faith, one baptism, one commission. Lord, I pray that we would cast our cares upon you, that we wouldn't be anxious or worry about things, but Father, that we would take our concerns, we would take our requests to you with thanksgiving in our hearts, knowing that you delight to hear our prayers and knowing that you delight to answer our prayers according to your will. Lord, I pray that we would Resolve to walk in personal holiness, Father, both in our thoughts and in our deeds, inside and out. Father, I pray that we would rely upon your Spirit to make us clean and holy vessels to be used by you for your purpose. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Let's stand together, brothers and sisters.